The coronavirus pandemic has highlighted shortcomings in our healthcare system as the deadly virus continues to spread across much of the United States, including in Oklahoma. But there is another healthcare crisis in play in Oklahoma's rural communities, where hospitals are struggling to remain open, leaving many Oklahomans without immediate access to emergency care. I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier, and on this week's episode of Listen Frontier, I speak with our own Brianna Bailey about a recent series of stories she produced that explore how desperate some rural communities are to save their hospitals and how some are turning to for-profit companies for help. I also speak with The Frontier's Cassie McClung about the latest COVID-19 trends in Oklahoma and the continued rise in hospitalizations and deaths. For the past year, the frontierist Brianna Bailey has been reporting on the plight of rural hospitals. Published as part of a partnership with the ProPublica Local Reporting Network, Brianna's series explored the grim reality for many rural hospitals that are struggling to stay open. I'd encourage you to check out that series, which you can find at readfrontier.org. Just click on the Special Projects tab at the top of the page. One story looked at Haskell County Community Hospital where the eight nurses left also double as janitors. Brianna also wrote about the only emergency room in Texas County, which is home to Guyman in the state's panhandle. I recently spoke with Brianna about that story and asked her about two individuals she wrote about. So tell us about Mabel Garcia. Mabel Garcia um, is a woman from Guyman, Oklahoma, and she... Uh, you know, she, an older woman, she was having heart problems, and she was in the hospital already uh, in Guymon, Oklahoma, and it's, a, it's in a very remote part of the state, Memorial Hospital, Texas County. It's, it's what's called a critical access hospital. Sometimes these hospitals are called safety net hospitals. Um, uh, less generously, sometimes they're called Band-Aid stations. But it's, it's a very small hospital with not a lot of services. So you're not going to be able to go there and uh, get the same care that you would get at like OU Medical Center or, uh, you know, there's not like specialists there. You're not going to be able to have brain surgery there or open heart surgery. They're just going to basically be able to stabilize you and transport you to somewhere else where you can um, get the services you need. But this hospital had been struggling for years to stay open and they were in such bad shape by the time Mabel got there that they were, um, they didn't even have the drugs that they needed to treat her stroke. Um, there's a drug called Activase. It's a clot busting drug. So it, it busts uh, blood clots in your brain or in your heart if you're having a heart attack. Um, and the hospital didn't have that drug. When you're having a stroke, your, your brain isn't getting the oxygen it needs because there's a blood clot in your brain. And the longer you have to wait to get treatment, um, uh, the more likely it is that you 
will have permanent brain damage. If you're in Guymon and you have a stroke, it's going to take you an hour or longer to get transported anywhere else to get that drug. Once she got to the hospital, she was there with a family member. Um, she they st- they noticed that she was um, not able to speak, having symptoms of a stroke, and it took over three hours to get her transported to another hospital in Texas uh, where she was able to get the the care that she needed. Uh, She passed away after about another month. Um, But uh, the last month of her life, uh, she couldn't speak anymore, which was, you know, upsetting to her family uh, to see her like that. And they, they believed that You know, if she would have gotten treatment uh, sooner, that uh, she would have, you know, had some better quality of life for her last her last month, being able to communicate and talk with her family. Uh, But it just it took so long to get her access to care, and you know, it's it's um, her family still wonders what happened. So tell us about Doug Swim. So Doug Swim was a guy who came to Guymon in 2017 and uh, basically promised the community there that he could save their their local hospital and turn it around. Um, he was a he, he had never run a hospital before. He had some you know experience, some medical background. Um, he managed medical practices for like physicians who own their own practice. I think he was a uh, medical malpractice attorney for a while, but he had never run a hospital. And uh, what happens in a lot of um, small communities like Guymon that are trying to keep their hospitals open, they're just desperate to um, find any solution they can, and they'll they'll just hand over the keys to anyone who says they can help and they can keep the hospital open for another year. The The county hospital board that controlled the hospital, they they sold their hospital for $100 to this uh, guy, Doug Swim, uh, who said, you know, I can, I can save your hospital. I've got investors. I've got $2 million. And the, the hospital was already pretty deep in debt and struggling to stay open when he got there. Um, you know, and that's part of the reason they gave him the hospital was because uh, they didn't know how much longer they could afford to pay doctors and nurses and keep the doors open. So they gave it to him. They don't really check into his background or check out his finances. They, they just basically say, here you go. You can, you can take over a hospital. Um, very quickly, uh, from interviews, we learned that, you know, the hospital continued to decline and fell further behind in their bills. They laid off about half the staff. State inspectors found a lot of ho- problems at the hospital. They were not able to treat people for things like snake bites and strokes because they didn't have the medications on hand that they needed to because they couldn't afford to buy them. And uh, the the local hospital board ended up having to go to court to sue to get their hospital back from Doug Swim and his company and keep it open. 
So why is it challenging for so many rural hospitals right now? Yeah, declining population. The population of the Panhandle has, you know, declined by like I think like a third or something over the past few decades. um, You know, fewer people are going into the agricultural uh, business that their their parents have have worked in. They're moving to urban areas with more opportunities. Also. Um, there's been cuts to reimbursement rates for Medicare and Medicaid for hospitals. Um, that's challenging for hospitals. So you've got, you know, cuts to provider rates. You've got, um, a declining population, um, and also a high number of uninsured, especially in Oklahoma, um, rural Oklahoma have, has very high rates of uninsured. There's parts of the Oklahoma Panhandle where um, it's as high as 20% of the population doesn't have health insurance. And it's, it's just a struggle for these hospitals to stay open. And so, you know, when you, when you see a decline in population, so you see a decline in demand, but at the same time, th- you, you're still in need. Right. So the people who are are left in these communities and often they're they're aging, you know, it's the it's the older people in the community who remain and they need a place to get health care. And their local hospital is, you know, maybe the only place within 100 miles of them where they can receive medical care. It's the only emergency room. If you have a heart attack or a stroke, you need somewhere that you can go and where they can at least, you know, give you oxygen or um, stabilize you until they can get you out on a helicopter or a plane sometimes and get you to a larger hospital somewhere else. So just like Guyman, you you reported that there are 13 hospitals in Oklahoma that are run by private management companies. There's 13 that I found that have experienced uh, financial problems okay. under private management companies. Yeah. So this is not just a, a problem in Guymon. You're you're seeing this as a problem in many communities across the state. No, it's it's a problem in in many states, especially um, in states that didn't expand Medicaid across the South. Um, uh, parts of the United States that have you know large expanses of rural areas, lots of rural communities. Um, yeah, it's a it's a problem. Um, a lot of these hospitals, they're run by volunteers from the community. You know, it's like a county or city-owned hospital. And, you know, you've got, you know, the, the guy who runs the local bank on the board. Maybe you've got, like, a retired school teacher. Um, you've got, like, a volunteer firefighter. You know, it's people that don't know how to necessarily run a hospital. And... They're just so desperate to keep the doors open for their community that, you know, these companies come in and they promise, you know, hey, we can we can turn your hospital around. A lot of times they promise to invest money. Um, the hospital boards don't ask for a lot of proof or um, sometimes they even let these companies uh, run their hospital without a signed contract in place. And a lot of times it's a, it's a crisis situation that they step into, like they the hospital board literally will not know how they will pay hospital employees like in two weeks.
Once again, I'd encourage you to check out Brianna's stories. You can find them at readfrontier.org by clicking on the Special Projects tab at the top of the page. The continuing coronavirus pandemic has become another challenge not just for rural hospitals, but health facilities across the state. Oklahoma continues to experience a surge in cases, and the Frontier's Cassie McClung has been covering COVID-19 since the beginning. I spoke with her on Thursday about the latest trends, and I started by asking her if the situation was getting better or getting worse. So the, the state is still in the midst of, I think, a, a surge of new coronavirus cases. Um, over the past week or so, we've seen hospitalizations increase quite a bit. Um, I think today they decreased a little bit, but overall those are trending upward. And that's caused some concern from, you know, state officials and hospital officials, health experts in the field that were kind of, you know, the state's trending in the wrong direction overall. And are we still just seeing this as a product of, of more people getting tested? Um, you know, we've been we've kind of reopened now for several weeks. Uh, what are health officials kind of pegging this continued increase on? Yeah, so it's it's not more testing, even though the state is doing way more testing than it was early on into the pandemic. The, I guess the rate at which people are testing positive is increasing. So we see that spread is still happening in our communities. So more people are getting infected. Um, officials say that younger people are largely driving the increase, um, people under 35. Though recently, um, one health expert did tell me that they're starting to see cases in older patients, which you know we don't want to see because that population is at higher risk for severe or I guess unfavorable outcomes from the virus. And you know we've we've reported many times that the the state leadership and especially Governor Kevin Stitt has said that the the number of hospitalizations, the state hospitalization capacity, is what he's really going to be looking at in terms of making decisions on on whether or not he needs to to take any further action. He's continued to say that the state's capacity when it comes to hospital beds is strong. And as of Thursday, I think our our number of hospitalizations was just over just over six hundred. Mm -hmm. But but we're also hearing reports that maybe they're over, overall across the state there are available hospital beds, but not always that's not always the case when you look at specific cities, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think looking locally, especially in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, is where health leaders and I guess in hospitals have really been feeling the strain of COVID patients in their ICU. So ICU beds are what we've been seeing run, I guess those are running short. And in Tulsa, especially those have been running short over the past couple of days. Um, so this week, the state did expand its surge plan, which is going to increase the number of hospital beds available, but it has not been activated yet. Um, I'm not sure what would trigger that activation, but the state isn't quite there yet. Um, so, and then the governor also said if trends continue in hospitalizations, the state will have to halt elective surgeries again. So hospitalizations, um, you know, there have been concerns expressed by health officials and hospital leaders that they are running out of beds. But so far, um, at least on a statewide basis, the surge plan has been activated, but some hospitals have activated theirs independently. Yeah. And then obviously, I mean, if you're, if you're in need of hospitalization and you go to a specific hospital, 
and they're out of beds and you know there may be one available a couple hours away but that's that's not necessarily a, an immediate immediate relief for you in, in that moment right and so dr monks he, uh, george monks he's the president of the oklahoma state medical Asso association um today he actually tweeted out that on Monday, a patient sick with COVID-19 was in an ER at 8.30 a.m. and he needed a hospital bed, but there wasn't any left. So he had to wait until 5.30 in the evening before one came open in the Tulsa metro area. So, I mean, clearly in at least certain cities, beds are running out, um, but that, you know, that might look different in more rural areas. Yeah, and I, I want to ask you a uh, uh about testing because early on mm -hmm. during the pandemic a lot of the focus was on testing i mean we we all knew that the numbers were likely higher than than had been reported and and part of the the challenge was uh, there just wasn't the the massive access to testing and it was a problem we saw across the country and i, I mean i remember way back in, in in march i mean at one point the state only had a couple hundred tests to administer and was uh trying to be uh careful on, on who it administered test to mm -hmm. we've now seen why testing across the state um you know i believe there's still an, an ability to get a test in every county but are we are we meeting the needs of the demand for testing or, or where are we on, on the testing front right now yeah that's that's a really good question you know labs i've been hearing this from people who reached out to me um you know people who work at labs that labs are running behind on testing or processing these tests and part of the reason is just because you know, a shortage of supplies. It's still difficult to get reagents. It can be difficult to get the swabs to collect the specimens with. I, I've spoken with people who have waited more than two weeks to get their test results, and some of them are still waiting. So I think, you know, you, you can get a test. You might have to schedule out a week or two. You might have to wait, you know, days or weeks to get it back. And it does largely depend on probably where you live and where you go get the test. But um, I have in been increasingly hearing about a backlog of tests and it taking a long time to get results. And um, Health Commissioner Fry did address this, I think it was last week, that they have been seeing more of a backlog and a delay. And part of that is an issue with data entry. Not all of the problem, but part of it. Um, the health department uses a pretty antiquated program to input uh, um, test results in, and that program crashes often. You know, they're relying on faxes. And while people are getting alerted if they have it, um, it's been hard to keep up with, you know, just public data in general. So there's a few issues, I guess, circulating getting tests, getting results, and then getting that data out to the public. Yeah, and I know for me personally, I mean, my test took 14 days to get results back. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I, you know, the, I was told originally that it would take anywhere from, from one to seven days. And it was on day 14 that I, I called the number to, to find out about the results to see if, you know, what the delay might be. And, of course, it took, you know, a couple hours of waiting on the phone. And then once I talked to that person, they said, well, you should have had your results by now. Um, mm -hmm. But there's... But, you know, we can't we don't we don't have access to it. Anyways, long story short, within the next half hour, I got an email with my with my negative results. So, I mean, unless okay. that was a coincidence, I kind of got the impression that I, you know, had called and, and they checked it out and saw that maybe the results were sitting there. They just hadn't been sent out. So that's definitely an issue right now in terms of just, you know, tests have been completed and they're done. But it's, there's that, that other 
process of, of notifying notifying individuals. Right, exactly. And I my test, I took it, I think, a few days before you took yours, but mine took about three days, so that was pretty wow. quick. But yeah, so but I have heard of other people getting in Tulsa who have spoken with me about, you know, like you said, not getting the results back for about two weeks, but then calling and being able to get it somehow. So I don't know if it's, you know, people maybe not being reached out to if they're negative as much or where the disconnect is there. But um, I have heard of that from other people. Yeah, well, maybe your lab just didn't want to tick off uh, the person who's covering uh, COVID-19 like, <laughs> like you are. Um, so, maybe. you know, I, I would ask you kind of what we're what we're watching right now, but it seems like just <clears> over the last couple of weeks, we're just continuing to see that seven day average of new cases continue to trend. I'm, I'm looking at the graph mm -hmm. that you share on Twitter every day and that line just is just keep keeps going up. Is there any is there any indication right now that we that we may be flattening or plateauing? I know the governor has used those terms in recent weeks on television, but the graph mm -hmm. just doesn't seem to, to indicate that. Yeah, I would not consider the state um, the cases plateaued. I mean, as we can see, the seven day rolling average is still increasing. And if we go, you know, a week or two with, you know, with that, I guess, leveling out, then I would consider that a plateau. But for now, it looks like, you know, like you said, that it's it's on an upward trend. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't consider it plateauing. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, I talked to an expert yesterday and I'll try not to rant too much, but, you know, he said, since Oklahoma City and Tulsa have issued ma mask mandates that in the next couple of weeks, you know, if those are effective, if people are following it um, the way they're supposed to, wearing their masks the way they're supposed to, we might start seeing a decline in the next couple of weeks. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. You can find all our episodes in the Listen Frontier podcast feed. And if you subscribe to that feed, you'll get the latest episode as it drops. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you next week.